Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Could you imagine a world where winter sports are only for a select few? The magic moment sledding down your first hill, slipping and sliding across a shimmering pond of ice, or conquering your first black diamond all gone. In our current climate, carbon neutrality has become a passe response. Large corporations and organizations tell us it's all we can do, and we check our boxes accordingly. But maybe we have more power than we think. And that power isn't about making better personal choices or more sacrifices in our daily lives. Auden Schendler has a knack for debunking myths about climate change and spelling out practical solutions that can help all of us have a more positive impact. As the SVP of sustainability at the Aspen Ski Company, Auden knows exactly where these policies should emerge and how they can flourish. In our conversation, he will break down the difference between individual versus systemic action. Auden will remind us that this isn't about corporations being evil. It's about being clear about who has the power and how we can make sure that power is used for positive change that will improve all of our lives. According to him, if we wish to conserve our most treasured winter memories, then we must all work together and share our knowledge to implement systemic change. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and the cost of greatness, both on and off the Olympic stage. On today's episode, climate activist, businessman, and author Auden Schendler helps unveil the simplest concepts behind tackling climate change and saving the long-term future of winter sports. I'm Auden Schendler, and I run the sustainability programs at Aspen Skiing Company. Our mission is to reduce the impact of the company, to model solutions for the world, drive big-scale policy change, and to talk about it and get the word out from a kind of self-critical and humble perspective so that others can replicate what we've done or avoid the mistakes we've made. How did you first start to think about the environment and get interested in how we can protect it? I'm from New Jersey, and I was born in 1970. And if you go back to American history of that era, 1970 was rough times. So you had the Vietnam War going on. You had massive inflation. You had 
interest rates of 17%. That was in the later on in the 70s. And environmentally, we were at the lowest point in the nation's history. So you had, especially in New Jersey, you had people would just fill rivers with tires and garbage and the fields would be full of trash. And you've heard about rivers in Ohio catching fire and all these things. And I grew up kind of thinking, I hate New Jersey. (laughs) But what I realized over time is that I didn't hate New Jersey. I hated polluted America. So I know you've also written about an influential commercial that was all over TV during the same time in your life, which people call the crying Indian commercial. And the way you describe this one commercial shows so much about how we think about climate activism and conservation today. Can you tell us a little bit about that? In the 60s, you used to get your milk in a glass jar that was left on your porch, and then you left the empty jar and it got refilled. And then the plastics industry came along and they said, look, we can give you a disposable container that's really lightweight. There were all kinds of advantages to it. It's easier to transport and so forth. But what happened is there was plastic waste everywhere, just trash. This is what I was talking about, New Jersey in the 70s, trash in the rivers, plastic everywhere. And the plastics industry very intelligently said, we got a problem here, and if we don't act fast— we're going to get blamed for it instead of individuals taking the blame themselves. So working with a PR firm, they created an ad known as the Crying Indian ad. It was actually the actor was a Sicilian guy who played a Native American. Uh, That's a separate story. (laughs) But the ad shows this Native American person witnessing trash being dumped out of a car and he's on a horse and at the end a tear rolls down his cheek and the message was hey you can fix this this is your fault and if you think about any time you've picked up a piece of trash on the street you feel good you feel righteous it's that ad this ran in 1970 and then later in the 70s and it was an incredibly effective way to put the blame for an industrial problem on individuals. They were successful. Americans, as an individualistic culture, we want to take individual action. And it goes all the way back in environmentalism to Thoreau, who was very much about his bean patch and his own life and not about engaging in government. So the fossil fuel industry later replicated this approach with the idea of a carbon footprint. BP launched this in 2004. You had this thinking of, my carbon footprint's too big. This is my problem, too, because after all, I drive an SUV. Isn't this also my problem? And it's not that simple. Traditional corporate sustainability has always been kind of framed around the idea of, we'll fix ourselves. In the same way that as an individual, what you can do to be sustainable is drive a Prius, insulate your house, take cold showers, whatever that those things might be. And over time, we've asked the question, is that effective enough against problems that affect sustainability like climate change? And our answer has been, no, it's not. You got to rethink basically everything. So that's how we got to this this idea of, look, if you're Aspen, what should you do if you really cared about climate change? I sort of use climate change and sustainability interchangeably, because if you don't solve climate, Mm -hmm. you can't really stay in business forever, regardless of what your business is. So 
How involved are you in all of that, in the education and driving policy? What are your day-to-days and sort of big picture responsibilities? We're involved with every aspect of the company. So if we're building a hotel in Mammoth, which we are, that might be a couple hundred million dollar project. And we've got our fingers in the cake. We're working on picking the right mechanical engineers and how the hotel is designed and so forth. And then the same is true in terms of how we interact at the policy level, at the movement level, nonprofits. And then in terms of the kind of thing we're doing right here is actually part of our mission. It's not enough to keep your head down and do good work in the modern world. You have to spread that news. It's not tooting your horn. It's sharing the info. And we have a a long reputation of being brutally honest about what we've done right and wrong. We make a lot of mistakes, as does everybody, but we're willing to talk about it. That's huge. And that's unorthodox in the corporate world, I believe. So I think that's really cool. Is that where you got interested in the winter sports industry or what sparked that? Honestly, I didn't get into winter sports and skiing until I moved to Aspen Skiing Company and and started working on sustainability. When you work in a ski town at a ski resort, yet Yes, ski. Yeah. And that got me into more, more into the outdoor and snow sports world. It's a great world. And and also being among the elements. And there's a element of that that I've argued, if you're a skier, you are an environmentalist mm. of some fashion. You obviously care about the beauty of the world and protecting it and protecting the sport you love. So there's an opportunity there to exploit that common ground. Does that resonate with a lot of people you come across that are skiing, snowboarding, kayaking? Do you see a lot of focus on or concern for climate crisis? Now, for sure. And this is the vision of Protect Our Winters that I've been very involved with, which is that you've got a big, powerful trade group on one issue, guns, it's called the NRA, why don't you have a big, powerful trade group on another issue, climate change? Or why can't you have that constituency as powerful and as mobilized on climate? If you compare the two entities, the NRA was about 5 million people at its peak. The outdoor industry, depending on how you measure it, is 40 to 100 million. Mm -hmm. And those are, you know, you know this better than anyone, skiers are fanatics. Mm -hmm. Fisher people are fanatics. They're fishing in the rain. Skiers are out in trash bags if it's raining in the Pacific Northwest. And this is true of climbers. It's true of backpackers and hikers. So you have this fanatical base that considers themselves environmentalists to some extent. So the question is, how do you weaponize, how do you mobilize this group on climate? And the reason that's important is that social and policy change doesn't happen without a movement behind it. It's so true. We we do need to weaponize the winter sports fanatics and summer too, right? Surfers. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So was there a moment you can recall that was a turning point for you in terms of the way you approached or thought about climate activism? Yeah. The vision of corporate sustainability was that 
business is the only entity that's nimble enough, wealthy enough, and motivated enough to actually solve this problem. So the vision is corporations, we can change out light bulbs and put in solar power and it makes good business sense and it's good for the climate. So this was a vision that I carried from Rocky Mountain Institute and then I tried to implement. And the problem with it was it was all voluntary it depended on individual corporations doing this work instead of creating guardrails on capitalism, meaning all of that is great and beautiful thinking, but if you can still pollute for free, which you can, then it's not going to matter and there aren't going to be incentives to change. Over time, I got to this point where I felt that just looking at your own carbon impact and keeping your head down and saying, what can we do other than reduce our own impact? I determined that was complicit with a fossil fuel economy. In other words, the fossil fuel industry, the goal of which uh, is to monetize all the remaining fossil fuel reserves, because it's huge amounts of cash, they should take the blame for the climate problem by saying things like, after all, we use carbon too, so we can't talk, and not use voice and power and movements and your email list. And unfortunately, that's what corporate America has primarily done. And so essentially, we've been complicit in a fossil system. And we're saying, nope, can't do that anymore. Uh, we have to change. You've challenged this idea about being carbon neutral, which I think a lot of people hear that and think, okay, that's a good goal to have. What exactly does it mean to be carbon neutral? Generally speaking, carbon neutral means that you either don't emit any CO2 from your operations, including people flying to and from you. And if you do emit, you offset that by planting trees or buying offsets from different markets. How's Aspen doing? We've rejected the entire idea, okay. right? Because my thesis is that this isn't about us. Actually, you could zero out the footprint of the ski industry. We're still not solving climate change. You need policy and systems, regulations that are global in the end, but they should start in the United States that allow the entire economy to solve this problem. Let me give you an example. A number of years ago, I was looking at this specific problem around electricity. Ski resorts use a ton of electricity to run their lifts and to make snow and to, to run buildings. And I looked and I found out that you could buy these very cheap renewable energy certificates to basically lay claim that our electricity is zero carbon, it's all renewable. And then I dug in on that and I, I realized it was all bogus, like it wasn't real, the way these certificates worked. And th this is similar to how the carbon offset industry works in large part, not all offsets are bad, but basically it was, there's a wind farm over there and it's making power and it's been making power for 10 years. But if you pay me a little bit of money, you can claim the green power from that wind farm. And I was like, this is crazy. And so we, we stopped doing that. And then we did what we've been doing for years, which is we said, what if we really cared about this issue? And we looked at where we were getting our power. 
And it was a rural electric co-op that was mostly coal powered. And then we said, what if we wanted to change that? Turns out they had an elected board and the board never was challenged because nobody knew about the elections. And it was these old farmers and ranchers who'd been there for 30 years. And we said, we're going to change that. We're going to run candidates. And we actually ran the first woman ever to be elected to the board. It was extremely uncomfortable. We got told to butt out of energy politics by ranchers. We were called elitists because we could afford clean energy, but we won. But here's the thing. It took 15 years. We're still not done, but that utility has committed to be 100% real renewables, not paper renewables, by 2030. And here's the kicker. It also is going to green up Vail's power. Ah. And if you're not in the ski industry, Vail and Aspen are, they're not arch enemies, they're competitors. They're primary competitors, right? There's a Luke and Darth Vader relationship (laughs) between the two. So to distill what we care about in in a simple concept, it's we don't care about our ability to take credit for stuff. We want to see the change happen. That's very revealing because you hear these terms and you just sort of accept them at face value if you're a dilettante like the rest of us. And so it's really interesting to hear the truth and to be enlightened on what it really means. So you don't think being carbon neutral moves the needle at all? It's a distraction and possibly even complicity. It's a Mm -hmm. dodge of the real work. Look, it may cost a little money, but not that much to achieve carbon neutrality. All the efficiency and renewable stuff you might do at a business has payback. So it's not environmentalism. It's just business. Mm -hmm. And then you're buying these crappy offsets that are cheap and it doesn't change anything. But the, the reason I say it's a dodge is that it's very hard for a corporation to have its CEO publish an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying, we need federal climate policy. Mm -hmm. You will get crucified on Mm. social media. The reason we know this is we've done it. (laughs) We've done it on a range of issues, including immigration. We did something in the Wall Street Journal. There were like 603 comments. Every one of them was attacking us. Every single one. There were no positive comments. So- You got to say, well, why would corporations do that? And what we'd say to that is, if you claim to care about climate change, this is the hard work you have to do. If no one's mad at you and if everyone loves you, then you're not changing anything. That's for sure. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed.
So in a way, this sort of carbon neutral thing has enabled a fossil fuel industry because corporations can just say, I checked this box, and then there's really no accountability and it's tabled. And there's no then need to change governance. Right. If we've checked this box for carbon neutral, we're not going to advocate for policy change because we've done what we need to do. Right. So yes, it's the word I'm using is complicity. Complicit with the fossil fuel industry and a fossil economy that we're all part of. Do you think most of the responsibility lies on corporations when it comes to building a sustainable future or individuals? We've established that it's not enough to just drive your Prius and recycle your own plastic, that everybody has to take this personally and take it a step further. What I'm saying is that if you just take the blame and reduce your carbon footprint, then you are complicit with the fossil fuel industry. And the reason I say that is that's what the fossil fuel economy and industry would want you to do. Not do anything disruptive. Don't drive change. What you're actually obligated to do is be disruptive, to be part of a movement and a peaceful revolution that involves civics and governance and policy. Do you think more of the onus lies on corporations or individuals, or is it equitable? To answer your question, citizens in America are obligated to be citizens. But the other part is that as citizens, we have failed. If 40% of your electorate votes, you've failed. And it's good to remember when Ben Franklin left the Constitutional Convention, a woman famously came up to him and said, Mr. Franklin, what have you given us? And he said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And this gets back to my notion of changing our utility was hard work. It was painful. I was up at night because of it. Being a citizen's hard. Mm -hmm. And just think about your obligations. It's not just voting. It's being involved in your local government. And that's also being human and engaging on these tough issues and somehow proceeding as a civil society. From the corporate side, it's important to note that the fossil fuel industry wasn't all evil. What the fossil fuel industry did is hard workers and good people provided energy to America and made us the nation that we are and helped win World War II and so forth. And over time, the science told us that the carbon in fossil fuels was problematic and we need to address it. So it's not that we don't owe a great debt to coal and natural gas and oil. We do. And the vast majority of those people working in that, that world were good. But the leadership in the fossil fuel industry, when it realized that carbon was something that was going to have to be phased out, they started a campaign of disinformation to make sure that people took blame for it, to make sure that it didn't happen, that there wasn't regulation. This has all been very well documented in papers released through Freedom of Information Acts from ExxonMobil. My friend Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway wrote a book on it called Merchants of Doubt. So the short answer is the fossil fuel industry is the reason we're in this situation, but it preyed on a broken democratic system. There's so much money in politics that you can't get elected without taking money from fossil fuel industry or the, the drug industry or whatever. And so you can't just make good decisions. So can you talk about how policymakers addressed the ozone layer in the late 80s and how that connects to individual versus corporate responsibility? In the 80s, 
some scientists discovered that the ozone layer, which is ozone is O3, it's in the atmosphere and it protects us from ultraviolet uh, radiation and rays from the sun, was thinning. And it was thinning because of chlorofluorocarbons, which were famously in deodorant spray and other propellants for spray cans. And this was an amazing story of addressing an environmental problem. The problem was recognized as science. The fix was put in through a treaty called the Montreal Protocol, and CFCs were phased out. And then the the subsequent replacement, which also was damaging, but not as damaging, are slowly being phased out. The twist to the story that's interesting is that I believe it was DuPont had a fix. They had a fix in place that they could monetize. And so they were able to do this in some ways while making a profit. I'm always curious if there hadn't been this fix in place, what would have happened? But the fix to the ozone layer suggests that human society globally is capable of, of recognizing a problem based on science and then responding to it and fixing it. That seems like it was a more straightforward, simple problem than what we're facing right now. Yeah, I think it was because all of society didn't run on CFCs. It was deodorant and yeah. spray cans. <laughs> and there's an actual term for something that's complex and irreconcilable. And, and the term is a wicked problem. <laughs> and climate is a, an actual wicked problem in that literally everything we do as a society creates carbon dioxide emissions and it's pervasive throughout all we do. And it's not particularly easy to just get off fossil fuels. The opposition to fixing the climate problem is even if you wanted to, you couldn't do it. And if you did it immediately, you would put a lot of people in harm's way. They'd suffer. And that's all true. The point is you've got to expedite this as, as rapidly as you can, recognizing that there's a tail to the fossil fuel industry, which is good because it enables that economy to retool and for the workers in that world to find new work. What's the relationship between the fossil fuel industry and winter sports business historically? Where do we see fossil fuels enter into the world of winter sports? You have to know that whatever industry you're in, you're like a fish in water. It's just that we're humans in a fossil economy. And the ski industry was powered by cheap coal and is heated by natural gas. And the products, the skis themselves are all petrochemicals. And this is true of virtually everything, whether it's the auto industry or computers or what have you. So there's this long relationship and cheap fossil fuels enabled the success of the ski industry. So you gave us that great example about electricity. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the work you and others have done to cut ties with that relationship and move in a different direction? Yeah. So the as I will always say, the most important change that an Aspen can make is at the the federal or state policy level. What's interesting about, but our approach was a few years ago, our governor was John Hickenlooper. He's now a senator. We've known him for a long time, and he's very supportive of the outdoor industry in Colorado. And in this state, there's a body that makes climate policy. It's called the Air Quality Control Commission. And he appointed me to that commission. Once a month, I make policy. 
And so we did this for two and a half years. During that time, we passed a zero emissions vehicle law that copied California so that a certain percentage of vehicles would be electric. We passed more restrictions on methane emissions from the fossil fuel industry, and we passed restrictions on hydrofluorocarbons, which were the successors to the CFCs that destroyed the ozone layer. So point is, we're not just reducing our own impact, we're driving policy at the state level on the dime of the company. When we build new buildings, those are all electric. And an all electric building is how you get off fossil fuels. Because if you heat a building with natural gas, like every building in America is heated, that building will emit CO2 for its entire lifetime. But if you're greening the utility grid as we are, and it's slowly getting greener and greener, and your building is heated with that electricity, each year your building gets greener, and then one day it's net zero because you've achieved 100%. So electrification, both of transportation and of buildings, is a key climate solution. Is it a lot harder to build electric buildings? What's prohibitive about it? Yeah, the real problem is that people don't know how to do it. So if you're a a builder or contractor, you do natural gas and you've done it for 50 years. The new approach is, is heat pumps. It's just there aren't that many technicians out there and people don't use them that much. So there's not a long track record. So that makes it difficult and that makes it more expensive. If you have a problem with your gas furnace, there are 100 people who can fix it. If you have a problem with your heat pump, they're not as many. This is a technological transition and over time, we'll fix it. We just did one of the first all-electric employee housing buildings in the region, and it didn't work perfectly, and now it does, and now it's a model. So Aspen's role in the universe, in addition to wielding the power we have, is to model these solutions and then talk about them so other people can replicate. Yeah, so I think like the takeaway is the easier, softer way doesn't work that you have to get uncomfortable. You have to deal with friction in order to solve this wicked problem. To put it simply, nothing of any importance that humans have done has been easy. Cormac McCarthy has a great line that I love to quote, that all things of grace and beauty, such that one holds them to one's heart, have a common provenance in pain. Ooh, that's good. It's like doing good stuff is hard. And we sort of, as Americans, we're so coddled. We forgot that you actually have to put something back in for that great life you live. That's for sure. What do you think winter athletes should be most conscious of when it comes to waste and sustainability? It goes back to this question of hypocrisy. And I would say that if you're an athlete who's flying around and using carbon and talking about climate change, you're only a hypocrite if you're not using your voice and your platform and your power to drive change. But if you're doing that, then that's all we can ask of you. Because you, and this is true of a ski resort too, you live in a fossil fuel system that you didn't create. Mm -hmm. This is a really important point. You and I, an Aspen skiing company, we didn't say, hey, I really want to I want to run a ski resort, I want to heat buildings, I want to fly in a helicopter, and I want cold beer and hot showers. Will you provide that to me in the most damaging possible <laughs> way to civilization? Those conversations happened where government and corporations helped pick a lane for American fossil fuel use 
or renewable energy use. If you're an athlete, you want to be able to fly somewhere with a zero carbon footprint. Yeah, you want to make sacrifices to do it, but not by not flying. You have an obligation to talk to your fans and followers and your partners. Often your corporate partners are way more powerful than you are about climate and drive that change. If you are doing that, you have disproportionate power. One of the things social scientists have learned is that that they ask the question, why do people do stuff? And the answer is this concept of elite cues. And an elite cue would be if Michael Jordan eats Wheaties, you're going to eat Wheaties. You're not going to say, are Wheaties healthy? What's the iron in the Wheaties? Should I be eating wheat? You're going to eat the damn Wheaties. And that's what an elite cue does. And this is true. If you look at kids, my teenage son is wearing certain things because athletes wear them. He's not asking about the corporation or anything else. And that's what these athletes, they have this incredible power. And But this is true of CEOs as well. It's true of anyone of influence. And I think athletes are at the top of that in terms of being able to be influential. Can you define greenwashing? Yeah, greenwashing is environmental tokenism. So if a corporation says, we're going to give $10,000 to a highway cleanup program, and that's our environmental program, that's tokenism. It's not addressing any core problems. So greenwashing is, has been pervasive. And, and one note on it is that sometimes it's unintentional. Corporations aren't always saying, I'm going to do this thing that's evil. In the environmental movement, the corporate sustainability movement today, I would argue that some of the most, quote, rigorous approaches to sustainability are effectively greenwashing. So if you're really aggressively reducing your carbon footprint, but you're not engaging in the political process and using voice and power, I would argue that's greenwashing. But the businesses doing it are actually not trying to be bad. They just don't understand that the climate problem requires big systems change, not individual change. How much of a concern is greenwashing within the business of winter sports? I think that this notion of both intentional and unintentional greenwashing is a big concern. And this is where I feel like I'm alone on an island. I'll say, hey, guys, if you're just cutting carbon and buying carbon offsets, but essentially there are no guardrails on a capitalism that allows you to use the atmosphere as an open sewer, you're not going to solve climate. And the notion that those actions will solve climate, you know, that you as your business reducing your carbon 10% a year, if that's your climate solution, all you have to ask is, hey, is that going to solve the global climate problem? The answer is no. Okay, so wait a minute. Your climate approach, your climate strategy won't solve the problem. Should we think differently? <laughs> Is this enough to solve this global systemic problem? In terms of the Olympics, can you pinpoint some practices that are particularly unsustainable? I mean, the Olympics are the, is this crazy deal where you build a village and a venue and then you abandon it. And, and it has to be built fast, so it's not done well. And, and I actually was talking to people who are involved in the greening of the Vancouver Olympics, and it was like madness. Mm -hmm. And I think the Olympics are an example of entirely missing the point on climate. The point of the Olympics isn't build this green village and have a train that moves athletes. The point is 
You have a global stage where everybody pays attention and all these athletes are worshipped and people do amazing, incredible things. And so the opportunity is to use that as a platform to drive the change. Jesse Diggins is a great example of a great athlete who's very, very vocal on climate. And she used her podium the fame she got from that to talk about climate. So using that and using the Olympics itself and the people who run the Olympics to talk about the fact that there are fewer and fewer winter Olympic venues that will work at all in the future. What are the consequences if we don't for winter sports? Yeah. What does that look like? It's that winter and, and winter economies and winter sports have been part of being human in our climate forever. And you don't want to lose a piece of your culture and your identity. Yeah, there's a whole lot of other stuff. If skiing goes away, there's a whole lot of other problems we'll be facing. But it's a metaphor for what we stand to lose. And what we stand to lose is joy and culture and history and memories. We need the notion of losing skiing as a way to understand an issue that's a lot more uh, difficult and ethereal for people to understand. It's just one hook to get into that movement, to create that movement. The giant takeaway here that I think is really powerful is it's not enough to just do these things that have been basically marketing angles from fossil fuel industries or whatever to, to band-aid the problem. We have to get involved in our communities that we need to get involved and use our voices. For the citizen that doesn't know where to start with that, are there organizations they can get involved with? What is a good sort of next step for them to figure out how to take this on? There are all kinds of groups that help you with this. And the best are, I'll name a few, Protect Our Winners that I've been involved with. Extinction Rebellion is an amazing group. That and the Sunrise Movement are the climate movement. And then you have groups like 350.org and League of Conservation Voters. They can all help you be better citizens. But I want citizens to start publicly putting the pain to their favorite corporations and forcing them to engage. Think about it. If the CEO of Apple or Microsoft went to Washington and said, we absolutely must have climate policy, they have not done that. That would be heard loud and clear because these are giant, the biggest corporations. And these are very smart, very well-respected, good people. If the if customers start putting the shame to these corporations that you have to be doing this instead of just, even Apple just talks about it's how it's doing renewable stuff. And Microsoft says it's going to be net carbon neutral by 2050 for its whole history. But at the same time they made that announcement, they were hosting an oil conference in Saudi Arabia. Citizens should call that out. They care about their customers. Remember what happened with Nike in the sweatshop era. Their stock dropped in half overnight and it changed the company. We've talked about being a citizen in a democracy. I'm saying push on the corporations because you have tons of leverage there and get them to wield their enormous power. They've got more money than you ever will to push on the political process. It's not a perfect solution because corporations, as I said, have done bad things. But if we surely abdicate the good things they can do, it makes no sense and we'll never get anywhere. Yeah, and that's an absolute 
brilliant use of our power, personal power. Everybody has that power. My interview with Auden was an eye-opening glimpse into what could be. He reminds us all that it doesn't take much to be an environmentalist. And if you participate in any variety of outdoor activities, you are likely more involved than you think. We must remember to evaluate the science and to engage with our government representatives at all levels. With some tough love and hard discussions on the horizon, we could be seeing the early implementations of true change. I agree with Auden that we as global citizens can make Earth a better place for future generations, and all it takes is a little innovation. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Nikki Stein and Kelsey Albright. Tori Smith is our associate producer. Olivia Canny is our production assistant. Additional story editing from James Boo. Original music by James Lavino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen and Matt Eisenstadt. Next time on Torched, we will look at the history of Title IX and the challenges elite family athletes still face today when it comes to equal opportunity. The feeling at the time was that, oh, you're not going to waste this education and women are going to get pregnant and then just drop out of their professions. I mean, it was just, you know, sexism, pure and simple. That's next time on Torched. Thanks for listening. As always, if you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. See you next time.